The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. This morning, I want to go back to our series on the book of Mark, and we're going to pick up in the 11th chapter where we left off last time. You may recall that the last message on the book of Mark was uh, regarding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, riding on that little donkey, riding uh, on that, that beast that was so representative of you and I, uh, fallen man. Uh, you remember that uh, in the book of Exodus, we're told that, that the firstborn of every creature either had to be sacrificed or redeemed, but particularly the, 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 uh, the ass's colt, the, the little donkey, had to either be redeemed by a lamb or have his neck broken. And what, what a symbolism there, that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, the Lamb of God riding on the back of that little colt, the foal of an ass, that rep- so representative of mankind, of you and I. And so he gets into Jerusalem, and we'll pick up reading at verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves." For the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. This morning I want to preach to you on the topic of nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. Now, we don't need to miss the fact that what we're reading about in chapter 11 of Mark is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The storm clouds of Calvary are gathering on the horizon. It's clear what's coming, to him at least. He knows why he's there. That's a reason for some of this symbolism, I believe. He knows what he's about to do. He has ridden triumphantly into Jerusalem with palm fronds waving and all kinds of shouts of glory and and, and blessed is he, Hosanna, to the one who is coming in the name of the Lord. And, but he knows where this is ending. He knows what's coming. And you'll notice that in verse 11, he spent the evening looking around Jerusalem and looking around the temple. And then we have this weird little out-of-place kind of strange account here about a fig tree. And, and if you didn't know any better, taken out of context, you could really be confused about this. It doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, you could even look at it and say, well, boy, that Jesus was just being petulant and, 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 and impatient here, wasn't he? He, he kind of threw a fit. He threw a tantrum and, and cursed this fig tree. You might be tempted to look at it and say, well, what's that all about? But remember Brother Sonny Pyle's statement about a text out of context is just a pretext? <laughs> well, that's true, and we need to understand that the encounter with the fig tree did not happen in a vacuum. And in fact, there's a great spiritual lesson here that Jesus is teaching his disciples and, and by proxy us about this little fig, using this little fig tree about the bearing of fruit. 
Notice when he came to the fig tree, there was nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. I want you to ask yourself this morning about your discipleship, your spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I've asked myself this all week, so I've already been dealing with it. But I want you to deal with it. Are you nothing but leaves? Are we nothing but leaves that look good from afar off, but no fruit therein? Jesus comes here to uh, this little tree, and I want you to notice first, that we're not going to stop here, by the way. We're going to keep reading. We're going to go farther, but I just wanted to stop there to set the tone. But Jesus comes to this fig tree, and I want you to notice the failure of the fig tree. I want you to notice the failure of the fig tree. Now, notice Jesus had, some, had a desire for it. He had, verse 12, on the morrow... When they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. Now, I want to stop right there. This really isn't right in the middle of what I want to preach about, but I, I think it's important not to miss this simple truth, this simple declaration. Jesus, who created all that is in the world, who made every herb-bearing seed, every animal for food, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, was hungry. Isn't that something? He desired food. If that doesn't hit you, hit home to you, it ought to. Because what that tells us is, unlike the Greeks and the Romans, who had these, these gods that were so much greater and had no empathy or sympathy and couldn't identify with them. Our God, who is greater than all the gods, in fact, there is no God except our God, yet he, he condescended to become man. So that, think, I want you to think about it today. Okay, I'm sure if you're like me, before I get through preaching, I'll be hungry. You'll be hungry. I'm already hungry. I feel my stomach rolling right now. I'm growling right now. I'm ready to quit preaching and go eat, okay? But I want you to think about that when you feel the next hunger pain, that the pang of hunger you're feeling is the same feeling Jesus had. He experienced it. Listen, you know, back in earlier in this chapter, and, and when, when he, he tells them to go to this village, back in verses 2 and 3, he says, you go to this village, you'll find this colt, Tied where on never man sat. And, if any, and then in verse 3 says, If anybody asks you why, say this, The Lord hath need of him. Now, we didn't make much of that when we read it last time we preached from this. But I want you to think about that statement. The Lord hath need of him. Is it not amazing that the Lord ever needed anything? You know... Doesn't it remind you of something, of a truth that's so important? 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. The great God, he said, I've got, I need him. I need him. Now remember, he was the king of kings. And yet he was born in a stable. He created the stars. And yet Matthew chapter 8 tells us he hath nowhere to lay his head. He owned the cattle on a thousand hills. And yet he says, I'm hungry. He desired food. 
He fashioned everything out of nothing, and yet he had to borrow a boat to preach in. He formed the oceans and every drop of water that ever has existed in the world, and yet he cried out on the cross, I thirst. He made the trees, and yet he was hung upon a tree. He molded the rocks from nothing, and yet he was laid in a borrowed tomb. <laughs> he has ridden on the clouds in his glory, according to Psalm chapter 104. In one place it said he's walked on the wings of the wind, and yet he had to borrow a donkey to ride on to come into Jerusalem. He experienced hunger and thirst and weariness and pain, rejection, loneliness, sorrow, poverty. The great king of kings, though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty, might be made rich. Is that not amazing? Don't miss these little tidbits that the Lord gives to us. He was hungry. He was hungry. He is tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. This is the God we're talking about. This is the Savior that came to save us. This is the, this is the one who didn't try who didn't attempt but accomplished our salvation. See, he, it says on the morrow, verse 12, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And listen, seeing a fig tree from afar off having leaves, he came if haply he might find anything thereon. He had a desire for fruit from that fig tree. He desired to go to this fig tree. His his purpose in going there was he wanted to pluck some figs off of the tree and eat them. It's really amazing that I've, when I was reading this, I identify with this to a certain extent. I've got three fig trees in my yard now that I've planted, been planted for several years. And uh, this year, the, the trees just blossomed out beautifully. I mean, they were thick leaves. And, all, and at, at the time when last year they had borne a good bit of fruit, I went down there day after day, and there was no figs. There were no figs. At one point, there weren't even any figs budding. And, and, and so I, I, under, I, I could see them from afar off, and they looked great. And I said, man, I'm ready. I'm and I go down there, and there's nothing there, nothing there at all. So although in no way could I compare myself to the Lord, at least I understand what he's saying here. He saw from afar off these fig trees that had leaves upon them. And, and aren't the fig leaves just beautiful? I mean, aren't those some of the, they're big and beautiful, they're, they're green, they're, they're just, they just look lush, you know, they look like something almost out of place, you know, in our area here where we don't have big, lush, you know, rainforest type trees. It's, uh, you know, here, here we've got a tree that looks good from afar off, and at first glance, it was promising. It had a veneer of prosperity over it. But when he got there, notice, he came, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves, no fruit. No fruit under the leaves, beautiful on the outside, but the closer you get, you realize there's just nothing there. By the way, this is not our first encounter with fig leaves in the Bible, is it? It's not the first time we've read about fig leaves. In fact, the first time we read about fig leaves 
is down is back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 after Eve has eaten the fruit that she shouldn't have eaten of and Adam followed suit then it says the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked and what did they do they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons they tried to cover their sin with the leaves from this tree and it made sense, didn't it? I mean, again, those fig trees, fig leaves are big. They're nice and big. You know, it'd be, it'd be hard to try to make an apron out of a willow oak leaf. <laughs> you know, we got a willow oak in the back of our backyard. The leaves are about that long and that wide. <laughs> it wouldn't, that wouldn't make sense, would it? But I could see them saying, well, the fig leaves would work. And they're trying to cover up their sin. They're covering up their nakedness with these fig leaves. I'll tell you, beloved, the leaves of a fig tree have always kind of been symbolic of man's efforts in trying to cover himself up before God. But this tree was barren. It looked good on the outside, but it was dead as far as fruit was concerned on the inside. Let's keep reading now in our passage. Verse 15. Or verse 14, just to recap. And Jesus answered and said unto it, he said unto the fig tree, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Now again, if you're not careful, you'll say, Well, Jesus just really got mad, didn't he? Jesus didn't get Jesus got mad from time to time. Jesus got angry, but never in a sinful way. And never in a way that wasn't appropriate. And in this case, it was very appropriate, whatever his emotion was, because I want you to keep reading with me and see what happens next. Verse 15, and they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. Now notice what's happened here. He's found this fig tree with leaves but no fruit. And he curses it, you might say. Not in a, an ungodly way. He places a curse upon it said, No man eat of thee hereafter. And then we see, we see the failure of the fig tree. Now we see the trouble with the temple. The trouble with the temple. And notice that Jesus, like the tree, had a desire for his people to bear fruit. He had a desire for his people to bear fruit. You remember verse 11? We started out with that when it said, Jesus, after riding the donkey into Jerusalem, he entered into Jerusalem and he entered into the temple. And, and it says he looked round about upon all things and then he went home or went out of the, of the, the city to Bethany to spend the night. I wonder what he was thinking that night. I wonder what was going through his mind. Because you see, I believe Jesus... Uh, as a man was troubled from time to time. We know in the garden of Gethsemane, he was troubled. His spirit was, was troubled within him. Now again, it's not in a faithless way or in a way that would be considered sinful, but the things he saw troubled him. The things he saw around him angered him. We see here Jesus acting in a righteous anger, uh, uh, lashing out, so to speak, at the corruption and the problems that were attendant to the temple worship of that day. Beloved, 
We should never act in the base passions of our nature in anger, uh, lashing out at people. But we, it is okay to have a righteous anger when we see the Word of God corrupted, when we see the worship of God corrupted, when we see the people of God fleeced like the sheep are being fleeced in the world today. That makes me angry. And I think I'm in good company. Because the Lord was not happy with what was going on. Aren't there some great similarities to the temple worship of that day and the denominational worship of this day? God forbid we ever should be lumped together with those who fleece the sheep instead of feeding the sheep. I turned on this morning and I watched uh, a televangelist who would, would occasionally mention the name of Jesus, but would never mention sin, and would always talk about how you need to declare it to be so, and declare your addiction over, declare your financial problems over. Oh, and Jesus, you just, he's just waiting on you to do that, and to do it in truth. And by the way, send me some money in the meantime. <laughs> Which was really the main focus of the message. Beloved, Jesus got upset about that. I got angry this morning watching this televangelist. And I think I was right, in good company at least, getting angry about that. You see, Jesus, notice, he went into Jerusalem and he looked around. This wasn't the first time. This day when he overturned the money changers' tables was not the first time he'd seen what was going on in the temple. He may have been in the temple before. I know he was as a young man teaching. But this is the beginning of his march to Calvary. This is the beginning of his last week of earthly life as far as uh, the, the time leading up uh, to, to his sacrifice on the cross. And here he comes in the night before and he's the day before and he sees all the corruption and all the problems and he had a desire for his people. See, he desired spiritual fruit. And think about this. Think about this. What was the most promising place on earth to find spiritual fruit in his day? If, if somebody came to you and said, where of all places in this whole wide world would you expect spiritual blessings and spiritual growth and spiritual fruit, where would it be? And you'd have to say the temple. The temple was the pinnacle of the Old Testament worship. It was the place where God had chosen to put his blessings. He had told David that uh, he wasn't going to let David build it, but he told him how to, and Solomon built the temple. Now, I realize that temple had been, uh, had been raised to the ground, uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, in Haggai, he says there's going to be a time. They were all upset about this new temple they built when they came back from the Babylonian captivity. Some of the old men that were there that had seen the, the other temple in all of its glory, they began to weep because this temple looked less glorious in the other temple he said listen to me it's going to be more glorious because the desire of all nations is coming and he's going to walk in this temple it may not be as massive and imposing a structure but it's going to be spiritually filled with the holy ghost because my son is coming there they should have been waiting on that they should have known it was coming they should have been looking for that and praying for that but instead he calls it a den of thieves you want to know why so many of God's children are turned off of church today? It's because so many churches are no more than a den of thieves. It's a place of merchandise. He calls it that in one place. It's a place where God 
is not worshiped, but the almighty dollar is worshiped. We've got to have more money to do this. Listen, I understand. We, we understand it takes, it takes money. I'm not, I'm not telling you to go home and quit contributing to the church. We need to pay the bills. We may need to pave the parking lot one day. We may need to do other little projects. We built this building here, but did, did you understand that it didn't take some kind of worldly effort to raise the funds to build this building? It took a lot of prayer. It took a lot of work, hard work by some of our members. But it took God's blessing. God will provide, you see. He desired spiritual fruit from the most promising place on earth to find it. Notice in verse 17, when he's, when he's telling and explaining what he's done here, he said, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? Of all, in, in other words, of all places in the world, of all nations in the world, this is the place I ought to be able to come to and find spiritual fruit. Instead, he finds it at a well in Samaria. Instead, he finds it at a publican's table when he calls Matthew. Instead, he finds it from a Syrophoenician woman or from a centurion, but not in the place where he desired for fruit to be. And notice it, he says too, of all nations, my house is supposed to be called the house of prayer. Not a house of prayer, the house of prayer. Now I realize, especially today, we have God's churches scattered throughout this world. And each one of those should be a place where prayer is offered. We, and we ought to be praying more here than we do. In fact, I intended to have an extra prayer this morning and it slipped my mind, but we'll try to keep focusing on that. We're going to have special prayer at the end of this service. And the house of God is supposed to be the house of prayer. That doesn't mean you don't pray at home. doesn't mean you don't pray anywhere you are. He says pray without ceasing, but of, of all places where you go in your life, in your daily walk, this place ought to be a place where you feel comfortable praying to God, whether it's publicly or silently. It doesn't matter. There ought to be, this ought not to be the house of the NFL uh, playoffs. <laughs> this ought not to be the house of the national championship. This ought not to be the house of, of, of higher education. This ought to be the house of prayer. We can enjoy those things. We can enjoy some of the things that God has blessed us to enjoy in the world. But here, of all places, this ought to be the place where we can pray. It ought not be the house of politics, either national, state, or local, or within the church, by the way. Did you know you can, have, you can play politics within the church if you're not careful? This is the place where God has said it ought to be the house of prayer. Jesus had prayed many times to his Father. But don't you think there was an expectation, even by him, that of all places that he had prayed, that he could pray best here in this temple where the old Ark of the Covenant had sat? I don't think it was there at this time, but where the Shekinah glory of God had come down from time to time, where the Holy of Holies was, where on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer sacrifice for the sins of all of God's children. 
Don't you think there was an expectation, well, here of all places, I ought to be able to pray. When he was 12 years old, he was found here. He was teaching here. But now it's become no more than a den of thieves. And notice his disappointment in the temple. I mean, it was bustling with activity. Obviously, it was a lot going on here. You know, sometimes in the world today, we see churches where there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of stuff going on at some of these mega churches. There's a lot of committees and there's a lot of building projects. There's a lot of, uh, uh, of activity. There's, there's sports teams. There's all kinds of things going on. But, but listen, beloved, that's not what makes it a house of the Lord. It's the house of prayer. It's a, you know, he said, he, he, he didn't look at it and say, y'all don't have enough going on here. He didn't say, oh, I got a problem with you. You don't have a big enough youth group here. <laughs> Where's your Where's your Christmas play? Where's your Easter play? Where's your dance team? I've seen churches that have a dance team. <laughs> he didn't say any, there was any, he said your small groups aren't, aren't meeting often enough. <laughs> you know what? We got our small group meeting right now. <laughs> he said, take heed. He said, uh, don't fear little, little flock. You know, I'm not saying we ought to keep ourselves small in number, but I'll tell you, beloved, I'm okay with a small number of children of God who are trying to worship Him in spirit and truth as opposed to a lot of activity in a big crowd. <laughs> you see, if you had gone into Jerusalem in Jesus' day and you had walked up, walked by the temple on a Sabbath or sometime near that time, you would have seen a lot of activity. The view from afar, like the fig tree, was grand. There was glamour, there was activity, there was all kinds of outward show and it would make you think, hey, this place is happening. But the problem with it is, is that like the fig tree, there was nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. There was no fruit. Glamour and activity, but no reverence and worship. Merchandise being made of God's people instead of feeding God's people. An outward show instead of inward sanctity. See, Jesus, as I said, this wasn't the first time he'd seen this. He came in the night before and he had seen all that was going on. And in Luke, Luke's account of his entry into Jerusalem, we read this in verse Chapter 19 and verse 41. When he was come near, that is, as he was riding into the city, he beheld the city and wept over it. He wept over it. And he goes on to talk about, he said, If, if thou hadst known uh, the things which belong unto thy peace. And that, that's, boy, that's a message right there, isn't it, Brother Buddy? If thou hadst known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. Beloved, sometimes we don't know the things which belong to our peace. We need to understand what really brings us peace in this world. Is it prosperity? Well, God's not against prosperity, but that's not what's going to bring you peace. Is it promotion? Well, God's not against you being promoted in this world, in your job or in whatever it is you're endeavoring, but that's not what's going to bring you peace. Is it some other thing of the world? No, it is, it is a, a close walk with our Lord in discipleship. 
He said, if you'd just known the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. And he goes on to talk about the destruction that's going to be coming upon him. But notice this, that evening before, when he came into Jerusalem, before he overturned the temple uh, merchandisers, he wept. He wept. He knew there was corruption here. He knew there were problems here. And he physically cast out the corruption. And, and John, I love John's a little more description of it in John chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, he made a scourge of small cords and he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured, he poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. Boy, did he upset some apple carts. <laughs> did he upset some apple carts? So much so that the very next verses say in verse 18, the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. In one sense, this was the beginning of the end for Jesus. In their minds, at least. They, they didn't like him, and they were kind of seeking to kill him already. But when he goes in there and messes with their, uh, their traditions and messes with their, uh, their practices and the things they'd been doing and the money and throw, overturn the tables and mess. You know, this is getting serious now. <laughs> That's kind of what they're saying. It began to affect their... Their money, they took, he overturned and scattered the money everywhere. And think about the aftermath of this. Think about all these money changers in the temple that were taking a little cut off the top of anything that they did. Uh, and all these that were selling these, uh, these lambs and sheep and oxen and all the things that were going on. They had made a business out of this. That, that was their livelihood. And now Jesus is messing all that up because the people are saying, whoa, time out. Wait a minute, we, we hear what this man has been preaching and we like it and now we see that they're just taking advantage of us. See, it's going to cut into their bottom line. And he says, they sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. You know, I, I'm thankful that in, in the case of most, most of you guys here, some of us, you know, it's been, but in the case of most of us here, we weren't floored by the doctrines of grace we'd heard them we'd heard the truth preached at different areas different places in our lives okay but you know there are this is a sad place to be these people were astonished said wait a minute you mean that's the truth i thought what i thought what the scribes and pharisees were telling us is the truth Do you know that's a problem with a lot of god's people today they don't hear anything but that other doctrine taught. They hear uh, the free will of man. They hear uh, it's up to you. They hear the prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. They watch televangelists on TV and they don't hear the truth. And they're a, uh, it's, it's neat when you run across somebody that's just astonished by the doctrines of grace. I love to see that, but it's also a sad commentary on the society that these doctrines of grace don't just permeate our society. There was a time when it wasn't that way, brother buddy. There was a time in the founding of our nation, I forget the, the percentages, but it was upwards of 70-something percent, maybe more, of the people uh, who were the founding fathers who at least had been exposed to the teachings of the doctrines of grace. That's just not the way it is anymore, and that's not the way it was in Jesus' day. They hadn't heard the truth in generations. God had not spoken to them because of their unbelief and their idolatry. He had not spoken to them for some 400 years. They had their minds fixed on a Maccabean revolt that had occurred about 200 years earlier, where, where when, when Judah Maccabee's father, the priest of Israel at that time, was murdered by 
by one of the uh, leaders of, he was uh, one of the Antiochus Epiphanes, I believe it was. He was one of the Ptolemaic leaders uh, who preceded the Roman Empire. When he was murdered, they rose up in revolt and they slaughtered those uh, Ptolemies and they and they uh, they ended up overthrowing that government and they took they took charge and began to have a political uh, a political revolution. That's what they were expecting. And Jesus comes in and says, "Hey, when somebody slaps you on one cheek, you turn them the other." That's not what the Maccabees taught. That's not what they were looking for. But you see, they were upset because he had upset their apple cart said all the people was astonished at his doctrine and when he even was come he went out of the city now we're going to keep reading here just a little bit further as we bring this to a close but i want you to listen to um, uh, some of the lessons here for us some of the lessons first of all i believe the one of the primary lessons of this passage is don't be a fruitless christian don't be a fig tree with leaves and no fruit. Notice in verse 20. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursedst is withered away. <laughs> Don't be all leaf and no fruit. You see, the result of fruitless living is that you will dry up from the roots. No, notice, you know, most of the time, something dries up from the top down, right? You know, the leaves start drying up and the roots follow eventually. And sometimes the roots are there. But, but beloved, if we, we need to be seeking the Lord and trying to serve Him and trying to bear fruit, otherwise we can actually dry up from the bottom up. <laughs> when we forsake godly living for the world's approach, the very root of faith in us will become dry and will become, we'll, we'll feel helpless. We'll feel hopeless in this world. So, so how do we do that? Well, Galatians chapter 5 gives a pretty good overview of the kinds of, the ways, the kinds of fruit that we should bear and the ways we should bear fruit. I, I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but notice the first, uh, uh, the first four verses here. It says, stand fast, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And he goes on to talk about don't go back to the old circumcision way of living and trying to work your way to heaven. He said in verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. So the first thing is don't fall from grace. Oh, preacher, you mean you can fall from grace and go to hell? No, that's not what he's talking about. But you can fall from the doctrines of grace. You can't fall out of the covenant of grace because you weren't a party to that covenant. You were a beneficiary of that covenant. Jesus, God chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That you should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. What is the, the, uh, the, the adoption of children? It's that time when the resurrection comes and our bodies are restored. Actually, they're changed uh, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And this old corruptible shall put on incorruption. And this mortal shall put on immortality. And the sting of death is gone. One day we will be with Him no matter how we live our lives here oh but oh but what a terrible thing to live in ignorance all of your life and wake up one morning in heaven saying man 
I should have been living like this all along. See, you, you can't fall out of the covenant of grace, but you can fall from the doctrines of grace. You can fall from the teachings of grace, and that's what he's talking about here. The first thing we need to do is don't fall from the doctrines of grace. That's the true gospel, by the way. That's the true good news that Jesus has been preaching all of his earthly ministry here and that he came to fulfill. And then he goes on, and we'll, we'll for the lack of time, skip down to about verse 13. He says, For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Okay, you've been called. That means you've been born again. You've already, that's been done for you, but you've been called for something particular. You've been called unto liberty, not bondage, not to go back and try to work your way to heaven. And now that you realize you, sh you don't have to work to, heaven, to get to heaven, there's something else you need to do. He tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we're ordained unto good works that we should walk in them. Not that we shall. <laughs> that would be absolute predestination. But that we should. We ought to. That's what we're called unto. And he said, don't use your liberty. Look at verse 13. For brethren, you've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. And he goes on to tell us some really important truths. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm sure there have been times when I've offended somebody in this very church. You think about your situation. Have you ever offended somebody? Has somebody offended you? Has someone offended you, made you mad? You didn't like what they said or how they said it? We said, all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, I love my neighbor, but boy, I didn't like what he said. I'm going to go talk about him. I'm going to go jump on him about it. We're going to get in a big rip. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. I know some churches that were consumed one of another because the membership couldn't get along. You know, I've heard it said, I can't remember the exact details, but I heard a preacher say one time that every church needs a good split. Oh, Lord, save us from such preachers. <laughs> Deliver us from such pastors. We don't need a good split. We need the good spirit. <laughs> we need the spirit of God, the spirit of love. And he said in verse 16, walk in the spirit. And ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. In other words, don't fall from the discipleship. Don't fall from a walk of faith. And just for lack of time, skip down to verse 22. You read this whole chapter sometime. And notice what it is we are to bear. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. You know, let me just say this about all those bear talking about, but gentleness. There are times in my family when I don't agree with what someone does or someone says. But you know what I don't do sometimes? I don't react in gentleness. I don't always use gentle words. I don't always use, it's okay to disagree, but you should do it gently. You know, sometimes in business meetings, we, one of the things we've been blessed with here is we don't have people <laughs> jumping up and uh, calling people out. I, I remember one of the first business meetings I was ever in as a district attorney. Uh, the DAs all would get together four times a year, quarterly meetings. And I went to my very first one back in 2001. And I came away astonished because there were people would stand up and say, I think we ought to do A. And somebody else would stand up and say, boy, you're stupid. We ought to do B. You know, and they just, man, they were just back and forth. And it was, whoa, you know. 
Uh, and I'm so glad we don't do that. We could. You, you, we could do that here. We could bite and devour one another because we got a human flesh, human nature rather, the fleshly nature. But we don't need to do that. Be gentle, even when we disagree. Goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, that's self-control. Against such, there is no law. So in other words, don't, don't fall from the doctrines of grace and don't fall from your spiritual walk of faith and don't fail to bear spiritual fruit. By doing this, you will bear spiritual fruit. Now, lesson number two, don't forget the power of faith. Back over in Mark, the 11th chapter, after Peter says, hey, master, look here what's happened. And he was astonished, you know. In verse 22, Jesus answering saith unto them, have faith in God. <laughs> there's, a, there's a loaded statement, isn't it? We could preach on that all day. Have faith in God. Real simple. Jesus is explaining what all of this means. Have faith in God. He says, for verily I say unto you that, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what, so, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. Now, Jesus' statement to the fig tree was not arbitrary. It wasn't impatience it wasn't anger it was he was exercising godly judgment and pronouncing a godly sentence upon a fruitless tree and he's saying to his disciples okay in your we don't have time to go into but in your earthly ministry here as you as you go forward after i'm crucified and buried and resurrected there will be times you will exercise godly judgment did you know we are allowed to judge <laughs> it's just not the kind of sitting in judgment that we're that that we always think about looking down on people that's not what he's talking about but he said exercise godly judgment and this is one of those places he didn't go to that tree and say well, i'm so mad at you because you didn't do what i want this tree it was promising and it's but it had no fruit there will be times, you know, there's places where Jesus told them a couple of times. He said that uh, whatsoever thou, you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatsoever uh, you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's not saying you're going to put people in heaven or take people out of heaven. What he's saying is, is the judgments you make as a church are going to be respected in heaven. The judge, in other words, if we have someone that we have to exercise discipline over, God will respect that if we do it in a godly, loving way, you see. And what he's saying to us here is, is, is that, that uh, you disciples are going to have to exercise this kind of godly judgment sometimes. In other words, if, if you go to a church and the church looks good on the outside, but they're not teaching the doctrines of grace, you, child of God, need to exercise judgment and go away from that place. <laughs> if you go to a church that is teaching the doctrines of grace, but they're not teaching it in love, you need to either change the, the, the culture in that church or you need to leave it, you see. Because that church is going to die. That church is not going to bear the kind of fruit that God wants it to bear. And he says, if you'll have faith in me and follow me, then the things you do, you will be blessed in. It, now, does it mean literally that you can say to a mountain, be picked up and cast into the sea? Well, yeah. 
If, if you really had that kind of faith, you could do that. But I don't know anybody that I've ever met that has that kind of faith. So what he's saying is strive for that kind of faith. Try to have that kind of faith. Pray to the Lord when you don't have that kind of faith. Lord, help mine unbelief and follow him and he will bless you in this life. Now, this is not a Joel Osteen sermon. This is not a name it and claim it sermon. This is not a prosperity gospel. He's simply telling us that we need to go to the Lord in prayer and faith. And he tells us a few lessons about that as we bring this to a close. First of all, he says we need to pray in faith. Prayer is not taking your grocery list to God and saying, Lord, here's what I need. I'll be waiting till you get back with me. You know, sometimes don't we do that, Lord, I need X, Y, and Z. I need A, B, C, and D. Yes, this is what, do this, 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 and this for me. That's not what prayer is. We don't have time to go to the model prayer. But prayer always starts with an acknowledgement of the greatness of God. <laughs> and prayer is, should be in faith. That's the, one of the first lessons here. You don't need to go to God saying, well, Lord, I know you're not going to do this, but I'm praying to you anyway, you know. I know that uh, you're not going to heal me, but I'm going to pray anyway. Well, why are you praying? <laughs> if you know the Lord's not going to heal you, don't ask him. <laughs> Pray in faith. Lord, we pray, we, we, we ask, we, we believe you can. We don't know whether you will, but we know you're able. Pray in faith and pray right things. Verse 24, therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. That doesn't mean the lust of the flesh or the pride of life or the lust of the eyes. That means have faith in God. And if you have faith in God and seek the will of God, you'll know what godly things you ought to be praying for. Pray for the right things. Don't desire things contrary to God's express will. I heard the story of a, a lady one time that said, I just don't know uh, whether I ought to leave my husband for this new man in my life. I'm going to pray about it. And my response to that is, don't pray about that. <laughs> you don't need to pray about that. You know what the God's will is. He's told you thou shalt not commit adultery, you see. There are things you don't have to pray for. But the good things we do need to pray for. And look, it says in verse 25, When you stand praying, forgive, if you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. In other words, we need to pray with compassion. Pray with a loving, forgiving spirit because that is essential to a right relationship with God. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven us. You see, of all people in the whole wide world, primitive Baptists ought to be the most compassionate, loving, forgiving people there are. Because we understand that it wasn't, there wasn't one iota of our efforts that got us where we are today. It was all on the Lord, and we did not deserve a single drop of his sweet, precious blood. Don't forget the power of faith. And ultimately, finally, don't forget the purpose of God's house. It is a house of prayer, not the house of style, not the house of money, not the house of architecture, or any other thing you could substitute in there. It is the house of prayer. And by the way, the lesson of the fig trees is not that you can lose your eternal salvation, but rather that you can lose your discipleship blessings in the place where God, even in the place where God has chosen
to put his name, that is the church. Jesus said, no man eat of the fruit of thee hereafter forever. John said, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that bringeth not forth fruit is hewn down. Doesn't mean we're going to hell, but it means that God has no use for us if we're not seeking to bear fruit. Now, I don't have time this morning, but just let me give you a little hope. Look in Luke chapter 13 sometime, verses 6 through 9, he gives a parable of a man who comes upon a fig tree in his vineyard and it's not bearing fruit and he says, I'm going to cut it down and somebody else says, no, wait a minute, let's give it a year. <laughs> let's give it a year and we'll fertilize it, we'll dig around it, we'll aerate the soil, we'll do things that are necessary and maybe it'll bear fruit. Beloved, as a child of God, you are able to turn your, your fruit bearing around by seeking the place, number one, where God is blessing and feeding. You know, you can't grow if you're not fed, right? Well, you can't go if you're if you're not. You say, well, I just I don't know. If, I just I can serve him just as well in the tree stand. <laughs> I, I just I'm gonna go hunting this morning. I'm gonna go fishing this morning instead of going to church. I'm gonna go to work instead of going to church. I'm gonna go to the ball game instead of going to church. Well, you're not gonna quit being a child of God by doing that, but you're sure gonna be a stunted in, stunted in your growth as a child of God. Because you can't grow if you're not fed. That's a basic principle of life. It's a basic principle of spiritual life. And you know, the fertilizer that we need is the Word of God. And that what was planted in the heart of that one that was uh, the seed that was sown on the stony ground? It was the Word. It was the Word of God. And it needed to be cultivated. It needed to grow. The house of God. The house of God is to be a house of prayer, a house of reverence, a house of worship, where the focus is on God and not man. I'm afraid the preaching in most pulpits today is focused on the sinner, what the sinner must do, what the sinner has done, what he has to do to either become or maintain his status as a child of God. Praise God, the true gospel in the true house of God the message is about the Savior and what he's done for sinners, what he's accomplished on their behalf. I, I would to God that we could hear that message preached in every house of God and that every house of God in this nation and in this world might be truly the house of prayer. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. 